The season of Lent is about naming reality. Lent invites us to face and then to name the realities of our lives, both the darkness and the light, the brokenness and the healing. Reality is often a painful thing to face, but reality is always our friend. The way to healing comes not through avoiding the sin of our lives and avoiding the brokenness of our relationships, but by facing it head on, naming it for what it is, and then asking God to bring the healing that only God can bring. This Lent, the Psalms are going to be our guides on this healing journey, five or six weeks with the Psalms. And tonight, Psalm 51 is going to be our guide. But before we get there, I think I want us to acknowledge something very quickly, is that we cannot name realities that we cannot see whether it be physically or spiritually. (laughs) In your light, I see light, says the psalmist. And I would even say, in God's light, is it only there that we can really see darkness for what it truly is? Theologian that I spent my whole PhD studying (laughs) had this great, one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, in our fallen condition, we do not know. We do not know what we do not know. It's profoundly simple. (laughs) We can't see the areas of brokenness that need healing unless God himself shines light on them and shows them to us. We do not know what we do not know. And so I wonder if, before reflecting on Psalm 51, if we could just observe a few moments of silence together and ask God to help us know. Ask God to help us name what it is that we need to have healed. So let's take a moment of silence now. Let's ask, Lord, what would you have me consider tonight? Where is it that I need healing, Lord? Gracious Lord, would you shine the searching light of your love into every corner and crevice, crack and closet of our lives, until our inner darkness is named for what it is, and brought to your healing light. Bathe us in that healing light, O Lord. Amen. Holding whatever it is that God brought to your heart and mind in just a few brief moments, I want to walk through Psalm 51 together with you, because Psalm 51 helps us name the inner darkness that our prayer talks about, and it helps us name the healing light that our prayer talks about. And the inner darkness... Psalm 51 kind of draws us into it through a number of layers. It brings us into five layers of the darkness. The first is just David acknowledging his sin, not hiding it. Verse 3, for I know. That could be translated, I make known, I acknowledge. Lord, I admit my transgressions before you and my sin is ever before me. It's as if David is saying, Lord, I know my sin, and I finally now name it before you for what it really is. I'm not going to hide it anymore. Here's what it is. And he uses three words to kind of name the multi-leveled and multifaceted dynamic that sin is. They show up in verses 1 and 2. He says, blot out, number one, my transgressions. Verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from, number two, my iniquity, and then cleanse me from my, number three, sin. Transgression is this Hebrew word for rebellion. It is defiance in the face of lawful authority. 
It's like a child who's vehemently disobeying their parents. <laughs> Look at them straight in the eye as they do it. Iniquity is this Hebrew word for sin as waywardness. In the Old Testament wisdom literature, it often depicts life as being a series of forks in the road. You go down one fork and it's the way of wisdom. You go down the other fork and it's the way of foolishness. Here, iniquity is to see the fork in the road and deliberately choose the way of foolishness. And then sin is that Hebrew word for failure. It's failing to fulfill the purpose for which God made us. And I think this aspect of sin underlies a lot of our anxieties as modern people, actually. <laughs> we weren't created to fail, and yet we do all the time. And so underneath our modern preoccupations is often a fear with failure. Not living up, not letting others down. So David begins just by naming his sin. And then he goes further, and he, he names the fact, I think, that you can't separate sin from the sinner, really. We see this in verses 1 and 2, how he has this parallelism between me and my. He oscillates between me and my. Have mercy on me, O God, and then blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I think what we see David doing is he names his sin, and then he doesn't distance himself from the sin that he names. He's claiming that those actions are his. They express his character, and they reveal his inner self. He is precisely the sort of person who would do this thing, who would speak this way, who would respond in this way, who would act this way, who would think in this way. I can sense some of you getting uncomfortable right now. <laughs> but David owns this as his own. And then from there, David goes on to see his sin, not just as his own, but from God's perspective. And so we get in verse 4. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Yes, sin is a moral, social, psychological, emotional, economic reality. Sin happens between us in the real world. But David is saying is that ultimately sin is a theological reality. It offends God and it violates who he is and what he's on about in the world. So sin against our neighbors made in God's image is ultimately sin against God himself. Sin against the creatures who God formed with his own hands is ultimately sin against God himself. And so here the psalmist concedes that all that is wrong in his relationship with God is something that is caused on his side. And therefore God is justified in his words and he's blameless when he judges this sin. I.e. David is saying, my sin deserves God's judgment. And then David goes even further. <laughs> and he takes us deeper into the inner darkness, and he says that sin has always been a part of his life. Like there's been no part of his life, no time when he has not been marked by sin at the core of his being. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now there's a long history of interpretation around this verse. There's a lot of debate. If you want to talk about it, let's do it afterwards. I don't think David is saying sex is sinful. 
or that the way in which he was created and sinful. I think he's making a fundamental observation about the human condition, that there is something fundamentally askew about human existence as we experience it, and it's fundamentally askew from the very get-go. Every aspect and every season of our life is touched by the devastation of sin in some way, at some point, and at some place. And finally, David just full out faces the severity of his sin after going into all these layers. <laughs> There's no sense in David that he can save himself. There's no sense in David that what he needs most in this situation is to forgive himself or to offer himself healing. There's none of that here. He has no ability to do that. And there's no sense here that he has any claim or right before God at all. He comes to God completely empty-handed, utterly helpless, and just casts himself on the mercy of God. And so that's why we get this whole litany of petitions, that he is pleading for God to do what only God can do. So notice, have mercy, blot out, Lord. Wash, cleanse. Purge, hide. Create, renew. Cast not, take not. Restore, uphold. Deliver, open. He faces the severity of his sin, but one of the surprising things is he doesn't despair. It leads him to cry out. And this leads us to the other dynamic that Psalm 51 draws us into. It not only draws us into the layers of the inner darkness, but it draws us into the depths of the healing light. Notice verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David doesn't come to God and say, God, I've done lots of good things, and this was just a minor slip-up. <laughs> God, I'm, I'm sorry I did that, but nobody saw it and it didn't hurt anybody. It's not that bad. God, I promise I'll get my act together. Don't worry about it. David doesn't do any of that. He just comes to God and says, Lord, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy. In other words, David banks everything on God's character, not on his own. And it's God's revealed character at that, not just how David feels about God's character. So this language that shows up in steadfast love and abundant mercy is language that's drawn right from when God reveals his name to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Think about that. The golden calf just happened, which was like this big idolatry debacle. And, you know, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God gives him a little glimpse of his glory. And he declares his personal name to him his name that reveals his character. And he says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what is David doing here? He's coming to God totally empty-handed, realizing the depths of his inner darkness. And he's saying, God, but I'm banking everything on the character of who you have revealed yourself to be. And you said you were abounding in mercy. And you said you were abounding in steadfast love. So God, have mercy on me. I'm banking everything on it, God. And it's because David believes that God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy that he goes on to ask God not just for outer conformity, but for inner integrity of the heart, verse 6. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise, O God. I love that. <laughs> a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, O God. God resists the proud, but he is so gracious and so tender and so merciful towards the humble. To those who know that they don't have what it takes, to those who know that they've done horrible wrong, to those who know that the problem is not just a random event, but there's something deep within their hearts. And this leads David, this trust in God's character, to believe that God's grace is actually going to be effective in his life. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. That washing language is like the image of dirty laundry. It's not just like a polite polishing of something, but it is a deep cleansing scrub <laughs> of like my two-year-old son's laundry. <laughs> the other day I came home, and he was out gardening, and I went out there, and he literally... <laughs> was covered from mud just from head to toe. There's not a square inch of him that was not covered in mud. And that washing image is that image of having to deal with that child's laundry and try to get those stains out. Verse 7, David has this utter confidence that if he cries out to God, God's grace will be effective in his life. He sees his sin in light of God's ultimate victory over sin. He sees his confession in light of God's ultimate reconciliation. He sees his justification in light of God's ultimate sanctification and glorification. He sees, we might say to put it in our terms, Lent in light of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. God is going to do this thing. We are not left to our own devices. It's the light of Easter shines and casts the shadow of the cross over the whole of the Lenten season. We are drawn by God's grace into victory. And it's this confidence that God is ultimately going to do something and his grace will be effective in David's life that leads David to go on to, not, to ask not only for forgiveness and cleansing and deliverance, but for new creation, new strength, and new joy. Verse 10, new creation. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I mean, you guys know that the heart here in the Bible is not just the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. It's like the control center of human life. It's the center of all thinking and feel, feeling and willing. It's that thing that gathers all the data of life and tries to sift and sort through it and decide, how am I to be oriented and operating in the world? And so this prayer is so radical for David to say, create in me a clean heart, O God, like totally renew the way that I relate and am organized and oriented in the world. New creation. And he knows that he'll need strength for this new orientation. And so he prays for new strength in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. It's your spirit that's going to empower me for this. And it's because he believes that God will empower him with the spirit that he prays for new joy. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I love the image there in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Because it's not just restore to me the joy of your salvation. Like, I want joy, Lord. And that's something that we're praying for in Lent. But let me hear joy and gladness. It's this image of being welcomed into a community that is rejoicing with gladness over the restoration of a sinner. A reconciliation of a sinner. And so it's not only restore to me the joy of my salvation, but let me hear the joy and the gladness of the community in my restoration, O Lord. And this joy and gladness bubbles up in teaching and singing and declaring. One of the horrible things about sin is it creates guilt and shame in us. And one of the horrible things about guilt and shame is it tends to silence us. One of the wonderful things about grace is that it deals with that guilt and shame, and it opens us up to speak again. And so in verses 13 through 15, we get David talking about how he's going to teach others your ways once he's restored. Verse 14, how he's going to sing of God's character. And then verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's the cry of somebody who has been shamed by their conscience into silence. God, open my mouth that I may declare your praise. Sin silences us, but God's grace opens us up. It allows us to speak again. And this, I believe, I want to submit to you, is ultimately what Lent is all about. See, Lent is not merely about God revealing to us our manifold sins and wickedness, as the good old prayer book puts it. It's not merely about giving us an occasion for self-examination and prayer and fasting and self-denial, as good as those things are. And it's not merely about providing us for an opportunity to be able to see and name where we need healing, although, Lord, please do that for us. You see, fundamentally, Lent is about making us aware of the riches of God's grace, about the abundance of his mercy, and about the depths, the overflowing depths of his love. It's more fundamentally about giving us an occasion to proclaim the excellencies of the one who delivers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's more fundamentally and most fundamentally about giving us an opportunity to be released from our sin so that our lips may proclaim his praise and say, my God, how great thou art. That's the goal of Lent. That's the meaning and the ultimate purpose of Lent. That's the heartbeat and cry of Lent. Yes, Lord, shine your searching light on us. Yes, Lord, help me name my inner darkness. Yes, Lord, bring your healing light to bear. But Lord, please, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.